0: we already have our Bibles open to 1 Peter this morning. As the majority of chapter 1 has been read. I'm going to focus, uh, as Brother Terry indicated, the text comes from verses 13 through verses 17. We read in verse 1 of chapter 1 that this is an an epistle by the Apostle Peter who is writing to the pilgrims or to those that were sojourning as they had been dispersed into the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The reasons why they had been dispersed was in all probability because of Nero's fanatic desire to build a greater and a more prosperous and a more appealing Rome. So he decided that the only way that he could do that to build bigger and better buildings was to burn the city down. So most there in Rome in the 1st century realized that it was Nero himself who had the city of Rome burnt. And because this was done, he was not very popular because of that. So he devised a, a method to take the heat off of his back. So he blamed the Christians that were there in Rome for burning the city and made sure that that word was spread, and indeed it was. And because of that, the Christians were banished from Rome and they were spread all throughout the empire because of what Nero had done. So Peter is writing to this group of people that has been cast from their homes. They were suffering for the sake of Christ because of that persecution. So in verse 13, he mentions a few things that they need to focus on. Even though they were going through this difficult time, Peter says this is the way you need to be living. These are the things that you ought to be the most concerned about. So he says to them that they need First of all, to gird up the loins of their minds. Now when you think about someone in the first century, uh, the type of apparel that they wore, they often wore a long flowing garment or a robe. And in order for them to work or to run or to do just about anything strenuous, they had to wrap up that garment and tuck it in their belt so that they would be more mobile to do or to run or whatever they needed to do. So it's interesting here that Peter tells them that they need to gird up the loins not so that their legs can be free, but they need to gird up the loins of their minds so that their mind might be free, that it might be unencumbered to seek the things of God and to do the will of God. This reminds me of the writer to the Hebrews when he instructed his congregation to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets you and run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And he says, not only do you need to have this clarity of mind, but you need to be sober. In other words, you need to be clear-minded. Yes, you're going through a difficult circumstance. You're enduring very much. But despite that, despite the hardships, you need to be clear-headed and not forget the fact that you are citizens of the kingdom of God. You need to be self-controlled. You need to be sound in judgment. You need to be alert. And you need to be ready to meet the Lord when He returns for you. Even though you're going through these difficult times. Now in our text this morning, I want us to focus on uh, four major areas. And for the sake of simplicity, I want to give you each word in our text so it will be easy to follow. In verse 13, I want us to focus on the hope that awaits us. In verse 14, I want us to focus on not conforming ourselves to lust. Verse 15, the word holy. We're to be holy as God is holy. And then lastly, in verse 17, that we would understand that we are called upon to live in the fear of the Lord. First of all, in verse 13, he says there that we are to rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now some of your translations may say, may read that we are to set our hope. Evidently, this verse is pretty difficult to translate because the verb here in the original text is an active verb. It's an imperative verb, telling us that we need to be doing something. But guess what? The verb is not in the word rest, and the verb is not the word hope in the in the word uh, set either. But it's actually in the word hope. In our particular text, in the main particular text, the word hope is, is mentioned as a noun. But in the original, the Greek word is hope. And it's in the imperative. It's in the uh, instructional. And, and, you know, we really don't talk that way a whole lot, do. Except to say, in this matter, hope. You see, there it is. And the King James says, it does translate this verb, hope, as a verb, as it says, to hope to the very end. So they have captured, there the King James has captured something of the imperative nature of the verb hope, and that's a good thing. But you see, this is why I'm gonna, this is a side study as well, to, to say that not there's not simply one translation that is far greater than other translations. It's good that we have them all to get the complete meaning of a text. Enjoy them. Learn from them. Because you see, even though this verb, and this is what the Apostle Peter is saying, that we need to hope in the Lord. You see, the context is a context of receiving this hope in a very passive way. Although the verb is active. I see some of you making some faces. What are you talking about? I'm going to explain that to you. Because he says here that yes, we set this hope. We we rest in this hope. But yea, we can rest upon this great hope. Why? Look at verse 13. Because you need to fully rest your hope upon the grace. There it is. The grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see. Why is it that we... So, we don't have to strive and make this hope happen. You see, this hope is a byproduct of what we receive passively by God based upon the fact that our salvation is totally by the grace and the merit of God. When we came to know Christ... We were saved completely and totally by the merits of Jesus Christ and His kindness to us. We are saved in that grace. And today, day in and day out in our Christian lives, we appropriate that grace, don't we? In order to live the Christian life. But there is going to come a time when the the apex, the culmination of that grace of God that is poured out unto us in Jesus Christ is going to be made manifest and that's when Christ is going to come and there is one reason why we we are going to be gathered unto Him. It is because of this, this glorious grace which He's poured out upon us. And that's what He says. You need to rest in this glorious fact that this abundance of grace is going to be poured out upon you, is going to be brought to you. Yea, it is being given to you now, but it is going to be given to you in the much fuller sense when Christ comes and we see Him and we are gathered together unto Him. Then we will have even a greater understanding of this marvelous, manifestation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have it now, but it's coming in the future. You think of yourself standing alongside a railroad track. And you begin to hear this mighty locomotive is on the way. You hear it in the distance. Pulling Tons and tons of weight. It's mighty. It's powerful. Okay? You can hear it. And as it begins to grow grow closer to you, you can actually hear the ground shaking. You see, it's coming. Nothing can stop the power and the mass of this mighty locomotive with the immense amount of weight that it is bringing, you see. You see, that's... That's the concept here. In verse 5, we read this morning, Brother Terry read, that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's coming. He is coming. And He is going to bring about this abundant amount of grace which has saved us and which will, through Christ, deliver us into the kingdom. That's a glorious manifestation. You see, and Peter is writing to those who are hearing Him that they might get a grip upon this. And we need to get the same grip. You see, even though they were going through intense suffering, Peter says, focus your attention upon this grace that you are rooted in. Amen. I thought of the words of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter four and verse seventeen. In that context, when Paul is writing, he was talking about the tremendous amount of suffering that the apostles were going through. And also the church there at Corinth, the struggles they were having. But this is what he says for our light affliction which is but for a moment. You get that? What's our affliction like? It's light and it's momentary. But this is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed to us. Whatever affliction we have, it's light and momentary compared to the more exceeding heavy weight of glory which is also eternal that awaits for us. And he says there also the reason why we have this glorious blessing is because of the grace of God that is spread in the midst of God's people. So we need to rest, brothers and sisters, in this glorious grace that is going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, in verse 14, it's only fitting as we who are recipients of this glorious grace that we live, He says there in verse 14, as obedient children. Not, this is worded in the negative, not not conforming yourselves to the former lust as you did in your ignorance. He's talking about the lust that we were involved in before we came to salvation. And that word lust often refers to sexual lust, sexual temptation, a longing and desire. But it it can be related to any type of lust that is primarily against the things of God. Such as, the lust for food or too much food. Brother Terry said, Amen. Amen. Brother Rick says, Amen. Okay. You know, we struggle with these things, don't we? You said there's nothing wrong with that. Well, you know, there is something wrong with that, isn't there? Now, I've got to admit this, preaching to myself. You know, when I become so enamored with food, what's going to happen? I'm taking my eyes off the things of the Lord, you say, well, that's so minor. Well, it may not be so my you see? Because we can we can be thinking about these things, okay? We can be thinking about food, drink, uh, drugs, money, power, whatever, okay? Or, or also maybe uh, being bitter or angry. We can be lustful or have, have a desire to experience a, a bitter anger that we should not have. And The scripture says we ought not, we have been delivered from that kind of lifestyle. Therefore, we ought not to conform ourselves in this manner. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. In some manner, no matter how young you were, when you come to came to Christ, there was some conduct that we lived according to the lust of our flesh and we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. Because of our sins, we were under the wrath of God, the displeasure of God because there was enmity between us and God. And sometimes that relationship, that situation in which the sinner is in is hopeless to state Causes causes him to be angry at times as well, or throughout his life. That's why James chapter four in verse two says that you lust and you do not have, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain, and you fight and you war. You see, there's there's a, a desire and a lust that's not in check that is that comes about because of anger and a covetous nature. I was wrong, maybe yes, maybe you were wrong. But does that give you the right to be angry uh, with anyone? The scripture says here that we, in verse 14, we ought not to conform in this way as we did in ignorance before we came to Christ. Then, over further in our text, uh, the scripture t- uh, says in chapter 1 that we have been delivered as well from an aimless lifestyle. Just recently, in the last couple of weeks, after the tragic and brutal killing of George Floyd by the police officer Derek Chauvin, we have seen rioting, we've seen looting, and great destruction. The results, results are that Millions of money as well has been lost by hard-working, innocent people. Over 10,000 people arrested. Thousands of people injured, among whom are some over 400 police officers. And in my last count, just under 20 people have been killed in the riotings. Now, you know... We can understand that the vast majority. I would even venture to say all of these people are without God. You know they're not Christians, and it's understandable that they're going to do certain things. Okay, but it is inconceivable, on the other hand, that we as believers should live in a like manner. Okay, can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Should we? do evil? I mean, this is what I've screamed out at the television myself in the past weeks. Yeah, that's real smart. Let's do it more and more evil so that some kind of good might come from it. Really? I don't think so. Yeah, And Jesus said, we are not to return evil for evil. You so see, we live in a different manner, don't we? We, we, we ought not to respond in the ignorance of that God has delivered us from that kind of a futile, that kind of an aimless, ignorant kind of lifestyle. And yet, we ought not to think that we are totally divorced from being caught up in in such a temptation. The Scripture tells us that all sinful lusts end in some kind of chaotic manner. Alright? That is vividly portrayed in these riots but James chapter 1 and verse 15 says, when desires or our lusts have conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And that can happen in our life as well. We can conform ourselves to that type of lifestyle that we had before Christ, and it may come so very subtle, you see, that we, we slip into some of these desires that have no place in the Christian life. And when we do that, what happens? Well, we, we've taken us taken ourselves out of the game because we're no longer seeking Christ. We're no longer following Christ. We no longer are, are having our, our vision on the kingdom that has come. We get sidetracked by these Things that are absolute vanity. And in our own lives, it's, it's easy, it's, it's possible to do that. I look out there and, I, and I, I see some young people. I'm going to preach to you right now. You can conform to something in this world, even though you're a Christian. And by doing that, you're going to be led to make some kind of stupid, sinful mistake that may hinder you for the rest of your life. And I don't want to see that happen to you. No, you you, you don't need to conform yourselves to what you were before you were in Christ. Because make, make no mistake, the devil's intention is to steal and to kill and destroy. Be aware of the temptation that faces you. Don't think that you're immune from slipping into some form of a conformity that is not in line with what the Scriptures calls us to be and calls us to do. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How are our minds renewed? Well, through the Word of God. In our personal study, our minds are renewed to seek the things of the Lord. We're built up in the most holy faith. We hate, we bounce this off one another. We share the scriptures with one another. Maybe it's in a formal time, Bible study, or an informal time. You know, we build each other up in the faith in order that our minds might be renewed. Hopefully that's what's happening right here in this time of corporate worship. That your mind is being renewed by the things of God, and you're saying, wow! This text is saying we have a glorious rest in Christ that awaits us Is going to be brought by the grace of God. Hey, that makes me want to just cast away all these stupid things that are tempting me to conform to this world. I want to serve Christ. I've got a far better kingdom that awaits me. Turn away from that. Let your mind be transformed in order that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Then in verse 15, and verse 16, uh, the Apostle Peter turns away from the negative and turns more to the positive. He says in verse 15, but He who has called you is holy. You also be holy in your conduct because it is written, Be holy for I am holy. When we think about holiness, some may think, well, you know, that is for that elite bunch of Christians over there. That's for those super saints. No, not so. If you're a child of God, you're called to be holy. As a matter of fact, if you're not holy, you're not a child of God. The Word of God in the book of Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says that we have been predestined in order that we might be conformed to the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that image is a holy image. Well, what is meant by holiness? Two quick things. First of all it means that there is an absolute purity a blamelessness God is totally pure totally blameless he has not been he is not tempted with evil nor is there any evil in him nor is there any desire to do evil because he is totally pure and blameless and it's hard for us to get our minds around this in the sense of the very nature of God, isn't it? But so oftentimes in scripture, as the scripture tells us, that God lives in unapproachable light. Light is synonymous with purity, just as darkness is synonymous with evil or with sin. So we get this, this, this understanding that God his very being is, is a being of dazzling brilliance. When the when the when when Saul was persecuting the Christians. And he met Jesus on on the road to Damascus. What did he see? He saw nothing but a glorious, bright light to the point that he could not even discern that it was the Lord Jesus Christ that was speaking to him. And he was blinded as he came in contact with the dazzling brilliance of Christ. The prophet Isaiah, as he looked upon God in the temple, what happened to him? Well, as he as he viewed this, the glory of God, as, a, as the seraphs were flying around and crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God. And the temple was shaking. It was, it was an awesome, awesome experience. What happened? What was his response? I'm dead. I'm going to die. I can't endure this. Woe is me. I am undone. He cried out. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, even in that vision he had, he did not see God in all of His glory. Because you remember Moses' desire was to see the glory of God. And God said to him, no man can look upon me and live. But you see, he was desirous to see the Lord in His glory. And we should be too. And someday, as as the text we just looked at there in verse 13, because of the grace of God, we're going to someday. We're going to experience that glory. But God said to Moses, "You, you can't fathom me. You can't see me in all of my glory. But I'm going to place you in the cleft of the rock. And all of my goodness shall pass over you. So God allowed Moses to see just a glimpse of the glory of God as his backside was revealed to Moses. So, God is a God who is absolutely pure and absolutely holy. And then, the second meaning for the word holiness is that it is a holiness that means something is set aside or set apart, it's sanctified for a very special purpose. We see this very descriptively in the Old Testament where the temple itself as well as the, the, the holy place and the most holy place as well as the furniture and the vessels and the priests that served unto the Lord were all holy unto the Lord. That is, in the sense that they were set apart unto the Lord. And yes, as I said, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. We as Christians are seen as holy vessels. In Psalm chapter 4, you don't have to take the time to to turn there. I love this verse. Psalm 4 and verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart for Himself Him who is God. This is us. God in His perfect grace, mercy, and sovereignty has set us apart as well. Because we have become partakers of Christ. We have become partakers of His holiness. Therefore, because God is holy, we are to be holy. And if we are in Him, we are in God, we are in Christ, Christ is in us, then we have become holy. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Peter says then, in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. What's he talking about there? Does he mean that we in and of ourselves have purified ourselves? No. But through when we, when we believe the Gospel, receive the mercy and grace of Christ, we through believing the Gospel and understanding... Listen to me, folks. By understanding that Christ was the perfect and holy and righteous sacrifice that we can't save ourselves by our works, by going to church, by doing good things, by being baptized. None of those things can save us. By simply trusting in Christ, then our sins are transferred to Christ and His perfection, His righteousness, and His, His holiness are given to us as a gift by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we believe, we have then become recipients of the holiness and the purity of God. So that's what He's saying here in verse 22. Through only believing in Christ, by trusting in Christ, through what He's done, we have purified our souls in simply believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus as the Christ and as the Messiah. So, We are called as believers, since we are joined to the Lord, to be as He is. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 36, we are told to be merciful, just as our Heavenly Father is merciful. In Matthew 5, 48, we are told to be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is is perfect. When we think of God's perfection, God's attributes, God's characteristics, we think first and foremost about His holy character. Because it is the holy nature of God that seems to be in the Scriptures the most significant and descriptive attribute as to who God is. It is also an attribute that is most distinctive in relation to the sinner, you see. Because the sinner is unholy. He's evil. He's unjust. But God lives in absolute purity and in holiness. Therefore, we are called to emulate this very holiness. Because God is holy, be ye holy as well. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. Be imitators of God as dear children. Now this quote in Peter is actually taken from the book of Leviticus. Turn with me, if you will, to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20. By the way, The adjective holy is found more in the book of Leviticus than in any other place in the Bible. Its theme is is the holiness of God and how God is to be approached and how we are to live in that fashion. In Leviticus chapter 20, Verses 7. Verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. Okay, this is a standard. God is holy, you are to be holy. What do you think about that? Do you think this is just some added legalism? That God says, okay, I've saved you now, you gotta get out there and pull yourselves up by your own big, good, good straps and and be good? No. Because He says in the very next stick in that verse, listen to this, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. We could just as easily translate that word sanctification. I am the Lord who makes you holy. You're not doing it on your own. You found that out? Yeah, 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 yeah. we've all found that out. We can't do it our own. Can we? No. But by the grace of God, we can be holy. By the power of the Spirit of God, we can be made holy. So it's not just adding works to grace for the sake of working ourselves into the merit of God no we can be holy because God is both working in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure yes we're saved by grace but we're also sanctified by the grace of God we're made strong in Him we're to be holy And then lastly, we turn back to our text in 1 Peter. Because of what he has done for us, it certainly ought to have a major bearing on the way we live. Verse 15, verse chapter 1 and verse 17. Now this is the way we're living. Think about this. Verse 17. If you call on the Father, if that that word could be just as well translated and perhaps better translated, since you call on the Father. Okay, Times are tough, being difficult. I focus my eyes on that grace that's going to be brought to me when Christ is revealed. I'm resting in that hope. I'm seeking to be holy. Okay, how am I doing that? Well, I'm seeking God every day. You know, we are to pray without ceasing. And since we are in this, this uh, time while we are here on this earth, we are calling upon the Father, imploring the Lord to bestow His grace upon us. You see, It's a life of prayer. It's a life of seeking the, our loving Heavenly Father to dispense to us what we need in a time of trial. And then we have this, this this promise as well. That though He is a loving and gracious Father, He is also a judge, but He is a judge that is going to judge each of our works without any partiality at all. You see, a loving Father, but a, a judge as well. So the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 that we all as believers, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body while we're here according to that which he has done, whether he's done good or evil. You see, we're not working to save us, but because we're His and we've had true faith, we are working. And the Lord is very, very cognizant of that. Causes that we need to cry out in Him. We need to ask Him for His mercy and grace. But but noting also that God is concerned about how we're working. And this promise as well from Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love which you have shown in his name. That is, as those Hebrew Christians were ministering to others, they were loving one another. And you see, God is not is a God that is fully aware of our works and our desires. He doesn't look at outward appearances, but he looks at our heart. He does not judge in an impartial sense. He does not judge us based upon our race or our economic status, whether we are a lawyer or we are a garbage collector. He doesn't he's not concerned with that, you see. He's concerned about our conduct, about our character. So He's the perfect loving, loving Father who will, in fact, judge us according to our works. And because of that, look at the latter part of verse 17. Therefore, we are to conduct ourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. First of all, let's think about those, those words throughout the time of your stay. And the older you get, you look back, that stay seems to be so, so short, doesn't it? This sojourn that we're on. This brief visit. The Scripture says, for your life is only a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. The quote from Isaiah all flesh is as the grass. That's humanity. All the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You see, we're, we're only here for such a brief time. Have you look at any tombstones lately? You know? Date of birth, 19 seconds day of death twenty whatever such and such what's in the middle a little dash that's your life it's short it's short and then you think of uh, obituaries the newspaper doesn't give us very much either how long is an obituary maybe yeah three or four lines a couple paragraphs maybe four or five paragraphs it's not very much when you think about a, a whole lifetime is it uh Boy, life is short. Life is so short. And then you think about possibly the the phases of your life. Uh, some of us that are a little older than others, we can think back upon the phases of our life. Maybe that educational time that we went to preschool or grade school, middle school, high school, or whatever. And then we prepared for our career. And then we got our career. And then we worked through our career. Before you know it, boy, wow. what? did the time. go? I've done a lot of that. It goes by quick, doesn't it? Here's another way to look at the phases of your life. How about dog phases? <laughs> yeah, dog phases. Looking back at the course of my life, you know, if a dog lives a good, long life, you know how many dogs your life is worth? You're only good for about 6 to $10. And then you're gone, you know. You know, I've had eight or nine, but I look back on my life, I've had about five good dollars. They're gone. Life is very short. It's fleeting. And again, when Peter writes to this group of Christians, even though they are suffering, even though they have lost much of their financial Worth. Even if they don't have these things, Peter is urging them, despite the difficulties, focus on this grace of God. Rest in this grace of God. Don't conform. Remember what you were and remember where you're going. Don't conform to that former manner of life. Reflect the nature of God and be holy. And now he says, live during this short time while you were here in the fear of God. Verse seventeen. During the time of this short stay, live now, believer, in the fear of God. But Ecclesiastes tells us for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You say, well, I didn't think after we became a, became a, a, a Christian that you had to fear God. Well, you do not have to fear God in the sense that you will face the wrath of God because of your sins. No, you've been delivered from that. But we are still to have a reverent fear of the Lord. Not presuming upon God. Understanding that our God is still a consuming fire. Yes, He is a gracious Father. He has dispensed His grace upon us. So therefore we do not say, well, God's good, he's forgiven me, and I'm gonna go out here and live any way I want to. Now, if you've really been changed by the power of Christ, you're gonna be compelled. What's the whole what's our whole motivation for serving Christ? Because we love him. Because he's poured out his grace upon him. And yet we never should get away from that awesome honor. And respect is too less of a word. That reverence fear that we have for the Lord. In Psalm 76 and verse 7, as the psalmist is praying to the Lord, Lord, You Yourself are to be feared and who may stand in Your presence? Psalm 89 and verse 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those that are around Him. So you see, we've had, hopefully this morning, by looking at this text, we, our minds are more clear. They're more sober, we're more sober-minded. We praise God for this, this rest that we have in this, this great hope. We don't desire to conform to the ways of this world because we've been delivered from that place of darkness. We want to reflect the nature of God and live a holy life in the reverent fear of God. So then, in closing, what is our final motivation why we should do such? And it's simply because in verse 18, we need to remember that we have been redeemed. We've been paid for. We've been bought. We've been purchased. Not with corruptible things like silver or gold. But we have been redeemed from, there's that word in verse 18, from, a, from aimless conduct. Meaningless, vain conduct. We've been saved from that. And how are we saved in verse 19? But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. There's the reason why we are called to live and honor God. Because we have been redeemed. Not with some type of money that's going to pass away, but we have been redeemed through the incorruptible Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 16, the psalmist said that you will not allow my flesh to see corruption. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 31, uh, Peter preached that very verse as it related to Christ, that God did not allow him to see corruption, but raised Him up for us in these last days. Look at verse 20. For indeed He was ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. And you, through Him, believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and that your hope are in God. And we have been... Peter tells us there that we had been begotten again unto a living hope, chapter 1 and verse 3, through this resurrection of Christ from the dead. So, by the power of God, He has saved us. By the power of God, He preserved us. By the power of God, we can do and perform these stipulations that He has given to us here in this text. Again, verse twenty one, through him we have believed in God who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. They're not in ourselves. In First Peter chapter one, in verse eight. I'll leave you with this verse. As we are called out to live our faith, in verse 7, Peter says that when we live out our faith, it is more precious than the gold that perishes. We continue to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Verse 8, Whom we have not seen, yet we love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let's pray. Glorious is Your salvation, O Lord. Deliver us from any desire to... Follow the fleeting temptation of following our former lusts. Father, we praise You today that You poured out Your grace upon us. May we rest in that grace and look expectantly into that day when Christ is revealed and we receive the fullness of that grace. Oh, Lord, help us to reflect who we really are in You that we would be holy and that we would not presume upon You, but we might live with a reverent fear before You, seeking to bear fruit. Help us to follow You for one reason. That's because we love You and we rejoice in the glory of God. And look forward to that time when we will see You face to face. Minister to each heart that's here today, Lord. And continue to feed us on Your Word. Help us make wise decisions based upon this word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Yeah. this yeah. in. God for